Hello, and welcome to On Record In Conversation. I'm Jess Collins from the Birmingham Music Archive. In this podcast series, recorded in front of a live studio audience, we explore the vibrant and diverse music history, heritage and culture of Birmingham through the stories of some of those who have shaped and continue to influence the city's musical landscape. In this episode, Adrian Goldberg talks to award-winning saxophonist Zosa Cole. Winner of the BBC Young Jazz Musician Award in 2018, Zosa has headlined major jazz clubs, picked up further honours and recorded his acclaimed debut album. Adrian explores Zosa's deep connection to the lineage of jazz music and its relationship with inner city Birmingham. Yeah, and what a privilege it is to welcome a brilliant young talent to the stage, a saxophonist who's already established himself as one of the UK's leading jazz musicians, a performer immensely proud, I know, of his Birmingham roots and of his wider heritage as well. We all know that he won the BBC Young Jazz Musician of the Year in 2018. He's toured in his own name and released an album, Know Them, Know Us. He's also played alongside another Birmingham saxophone luminary, Soweto Kinch, on his Black Peril album. And there is a short film to discuss as well. Quite a track record for somebody only in his mid-twenties. Please welcome Zosa Cole. <laughs> While we were waiting to start this interview, Zosa was looking over there into Centenary Square and keeping an eye on his bike. <laughs> we all know he won the BBC Young Jazz Musician of the Year. You may not know that he's an incredibly keen cyclist. Where, where did that all come from, Zosa? Um, I guess it's, it was really based in a practical thing for me, you know, to get around the city... The easiest, cheapest, quickest way, and definitely now one of the quickest ways was definitely on two wheels. So my two older brothers cycled before me and, you know, I kind of, I still can't keep up with them, but I have a fun time kind of trailing in their wake. But, you know, there's many, many people kind of crack up about their seeing me as a, you know, 13, 14 year old cycling around the city with various um, plumbing on my back, various saxophones and, and this kind of, you know, this kind of thing, that kind of thing. And yeah, so he's, he's still over there. And it's not actually my bike. This one's my brother's bike, uh, which he's requested to have back on the 8th of June. So I'm just enjoying it while, while I can, really, because it's <laughs> a very nice bike. And that just grew out of economic necessity, then. It was the cheapest way of getting about. This is it, yeah. And I think because, you know, my family has two older brothers. We're a very active family, going to various different things. And we had different interests as well, lots of similar interests. But, you know, the, the mum and dad taxi service quickly wasn't possible to kind of, you know, run all these different journeys and stuff. So we really had quite a high level, high level of self-autonomy and stuff to move around the city, a city where there was lots of opportunities to pursue different things, different forms of... Um, arts and culture as well as kind of sports and various other bits and bobs so it was it was liberating for me it was kind of my key to just go you know what I mean just go and and be in this city you know yeah and I mentioned the thing that people everybody will know about you the BBC Young Jazz Musician of the Year in 2018 let's get that out of the way in a nice way Mm. early on just tell me what you remember about that and the occasion and the nerves and the excitement yeah, excitement was definitely the word that was the kind of focus for me and, and celebration was the other word because I remember going to, or sorry, watching, or maybe I didn't, I think I actively didn't watch the previous competitions that had happened because I was kind of maybe a bit resentful or, you know, scared of the the competition basically and the prospect of, you know, these 
young people who were immensely talented, but also had access to some pretty high-level tuition, high-level instruments and things like this. And for me, it felt on my radar in that I could see it, but off my radar in the sense that it wasn't something that was particularly within a vision of something that was possible for me to do in such a short space of time. I think over the long run, I never kind of set myself a limit to say, oh, I'll never get that good. But to get to the level of, you know, that level of um, musicianship at that age, I thought maybe not. And then it just was per chance that I was at, um, I just left the conservatoire after one year studying there, but I was still hanging out at the building. And one of the teachers... um, mentioned the competition to some of my friends who were still studying. I wondered if I thought, okay, I would have been 22 at the time. I was thinking, I think that might be a bit odd, but, you know, might as well check it out. The deadline was the following day, and I was, uh, I think, a month within the age limit to to kind of do it. So I quickly turned over a video and just submitted it with, and luckily because it was such a short-term deadline, I just thought, oh, well, I didn't have time to think about it and just kind of submitted it with the kind of think of not got anything to lose, basically. And then they asked to come uh, for the semi-finals, which were in the studios, Bell Studios, I think, in London. And that was where the nerves for me really kicked in because at that point there was the possibility of maybe, you know, being on that stage that I was kind of, as I say, aware of for a number of years and stuff. And for me, that was where the the pressure was because there was the possibility that was going to be the first, you know, person of colour on the... Um, on the show, you know what I mean, <clears throat> from the jazz community or for the jazz uh, part of the, you know, the BBC Young Musician thing. And also, you know, maybe one of the few people from a working class background. So I was like, yeah, this is a really important thing. So the stakes felt quite high. And then I did my audition. It was kind of a bit ropey from my perspective. And they kind of asked that, you know, at the end they say, oh, you've got to just answer a few questions now for this interview and stuff in case you make it through, blah, blah, blah. And I think I was really moody because I was just like, why are you putting me through this? You know, I know that, I've, you know, I, did, I tried, I tried my best, you know, maybe not this time, whatever. And then I was staying over at a friend's house in, in Digbeth. I slept many, many, many nights on their floor after listening to John Coltrane till the early hours kind of thing. And I didn't tell anyone that I'd applied because a, a lot of my friends had told people that they had applied and got through to the semifinals and did a little, not a song and dance about it, but they were proud of that achievement, you know, rightly so. But for me, because there was a lot to lose in terms of uh, the stakes were quite high, you know, you know, not just for me, myself, but what I would and was representing on the stage. I didn't want to um, not get, maybe not get my hopes up, but just kind of I didn't want to, you know, overcook it too quickly. And so I didn't tell anyone that I'd even applied for it. You know, I'd done it on the, the download. And then on the Monday, I opened my emails and, it's, and it was congratulations, you know, you're through to, and I woke my, fr- I like smacked him awake. I said, you know what I mean? Come on now. Um, you were through I, to the final. That was it. Yeah. And so from that point onwards, it was really, that was it, a celebration because the winning it, you know, has been a great blessing, you know, and to be considered even, you know, to play on that stage was, was enough for me. You know what I mean? So when it got to the performance, it was just a celebration. It was good to be there. It was good to celebrate Birmingham talent. It was good to celebrate black British talent. It was good to be represented and to represent on that stage and stuff. So. It was really, you know, by the time it got to the the gig, it was just, it was all fun, you know what I mean? And there was a real, real electric vibe in the room because um, I think the date or something, I didn't realise they'd released the tickets basically for the thing. And I hadn't really, you know, shouted about uh, even the final at this point. And then my mum told me, oh, there's only a few tickets left. So I broke the bank and bought about 20 or 30 tickets and just 
said to my friend, you know, do you want this ticket, whatever? And they, they were, and I didn't realise there was a, some prize money for the um, thing. So all my friends just came, many, many friends and family just came and watched and, and hung out. And luckily, because there was a bit of money, I didn't, I didn't ask them for any, for any money back. It might have been a slightly different story if I'd have lost, I don't know. But it was a proper, proper, I think it was the first time for that competition that they'd had that kind of mix of a of a community in their audience, you know. So it was great to be able to bring that that energy to their space, you know. And what difference did it make to you to win? Um, I mean, there's there's an element of because I was out of out of kind of formal education at this point musically. There was definitely a feeling of uh, I mean, and we still got to recognise this obviously from an institution, but validation. You know, in that I had the, there was a there was a validity in my decision to prematurely stop my studies. You know, um, because I wanted to learn in maybe a more traditional um, apprenticeship manner and and stay with my mentors and and teachers, maybe outside of a formalized learning environment and stuff. So that was definitely one of the key things for me was was I guess that that validation. Obviously, it kind of helps with you know platform and and opportunities and stuff, but. Again, I think it's one of those things where rather than it wasn't the thing that had opened the doors, but it made the doors open a lot quicker because it's, it's people that open open doors. But with a bit of with something like that, it helps you to, you know, pick yeah. the lock a bit quicker. I was really struck when you said that you were conscious, particularly at that semi-final stage of representing your class and your community. Tell me a little bit about growing up, where you grew up and kind of how you intersected with your class and your community. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I'm very proud to be uh, hailing from Hansworth in Birmingham. Uh, one of my mentors who's also on this, Lekan Babalola, he's, he's, um, he likes to refer to Hansworth as the Harlem of the UK. And I definitely feel like there is a legitimacy in that statement. You know, there's definitely a feeling of constant influx of different uh, communities in the area. Um, it's got this kind of old Victorian vibe, which maybe is a different if you kind of come from the outside and don't know the landscape and the people you might get a bit confused and so so it's quite an it's, it's definitely has, was an interesting place to grow up was exposed to many many different communities and cultures from early on and um through schooling and through the various kind of community outreach things and organizations that we were fortunate to be involved in you know it was just very exciting and it was very, very vibrant and colourful place to develop your sense of identity and also your sense of community. So, um, And we were also, you know, so close to the park, so close to Soho Road, so close to these, these different landmarks that subtly still have a very strong resonance and strong energy from kind of previous generations and their, the imprints that they've kind of left, you know, energetically in the space and stuff. So... I'm, I'm back. I'm back there now. I'm on. Well, maybe I shouldn't give my. <laughs> if anyone wants to send any fan mail <laughs> or hate mail, it's safe to say you're back living in Hansworth. I'm yeah. back living in Hansworth. Yeah. And you talked about the the class background as well. I mean, obviously Hansworth is a working class area, very diverse. So, what did your folks do? Um, so, my mum was and is heavily involved in youth work and community youth work uh, services. Formerly, she used to work for the um, Birmingham City Council and now she's working in Malvern doing some uh, management work within the same area. And so, you know, when you've got someone who is having grown up on the Isle of Wight, a very different um, cultural kind of experience to move into Birmingham and, and really, really being exposed to uh, the different communities in Birmingham, because as a youth worker, she was exposed to many different experiences and people and, and this kind of thing. So 
we really benefited from the fact that as well as we were connected within our peer group, you know, our mum was very much connected to the community that, that she was working with and, and was able to bring that experience and that very, very high level of empathy to our upbringing, basically, to kind of, you know, uh, lead by example and, and demonstrate the ways that we can be, you know, supportive of, of one another and s- sensitive to each other's experience, you know, individual experiences. And then dad was a, a man of many different um, things going on. He's, but I think officially on his, on some of his legal documents, his community community artist and um, as I say that encompassed a lot of different things he worked a lot with young people in the city um, and notably he was um, a storyteller for many years teaching Anansi stories the stories of West Africa folkloric um, stories to different young communities in the in the in the city and for a lot of uh, Afro-Caribbean young people in the 90s and early 2000s that was a real route back to and an foundation for the, for us as you know i say them us to um understand our heritage outside or delineating back further than our uh, caribbean and black british experience so he was just very hip and and always very uh visible with his experience or his expression of his african identity because I think growing up as a first gen born in the UK, he wasn't exposed to um, maybe some elements of his African heritage and therefore had his own, him and his generation have a whole um, different relationship, should we say, than my generation to their Africanness and their, their heritage in that sense, you know. So he was, he was quite, quite hip, quite ahead of the game, really, you know. And, and I think he just wanted us to feel slightly less displaced maybe than he did, so... That was, what was the question? Yeah, but you, you, you always, you always. I was talking about your parents and what they did and who, who they were. That's a great answer. So the sense of African heritage then from your dad's side was there from quite early on. You know, that was something that you could draw strength from as a young man growing up in this very diverse part of Birmingham. Yeah, definitely. Um, and linking it back to there was there was those seeds that I would say there were more seeds that were planted, and now they're kind of coming into fruition and, and blossoming really and a big part of that story for me has been through the music that I'm engaging with, you know, in this instance, black American music, but expanding further than that, diasporic music. And now reconnecting the dots between, you know, the narrative that my dad was able to bring to the table for us and some of the, the, the kind of more, um, that, that's a more folkloric thing. And, and now it's more of a factual thing, trying to understand the movement of people, understand the trajectory of different pushing and pulling forces that have, ended up with many, you know, um, members of the black community across all different parts of the world and stuff. So I would say that it was kind of very much a thing of, um, as I say, sowing the seeds and, and this music is, you know, if we follow the metaphor has been the kind of water and sunlight that's helped to kind of grow these, these things. And it's, it's a constant, it's a constant journey of learning and luckily being exposed to many different people from different walks of life and different parts of the African community globally especially as we say in such a diverse city and diverse um, nation, you know, it's kind of piecing the fabric together and kind of weaving that tapestry to understand what it is that has led me and my brothers to, to grow up in, you know, this, this beautiful part of Birmingham, you know. Yeah, we'll talk about the journey to jazz, but talk to me a little bit about your siblings then and going to school and the kind of music that you might have heard maybe from your brothers or from schoolmates, because I'm guessing, you know, they weren't all into John Coltrane when you were growing up. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, it was, it's, been a, 
it's been a long journey to to jazz music and it's only really in much more recent years that I've kind of really connected with the tradition and the direct lineage of this music. I would say that me and my brothers were always, I was about to say slightly alternative, but very, very kind of alternative. And I think part of that was our mixed heritage and our experience of um, having, you know, family still on the Isle of Wight and stuff like this. And so... Um, we and, were, so, and so your mixed heritage was? Oh, so my mum is mixed uh, white British and Indian. And then my dad is first generation Jamaican. And so, so yeah, but we, but we always had a pride in, 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 our, in our kind of differences. And I think we were always, you know, because we, it's hard to explain, but we, we just found a joy in, in following our, our own path and stuff. And I think, again, leading it back to the parents, I think they gave us the, the courage and the, the strong foundation to know that we could blossom in various different directions. So even the oldest brother, for example, you know, pursuing a career in dance, you know, in a, in a, in a city school in Hollyhead in Hansworth is pretty out there, you know, contemporary dance. That's Hollyhead road hollyhead school at the top of hollyhead road in answers exactly you know what i mean and 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 he just had a uh, had a vision and and pursued it you know and we were lucky to be around many people who helped us to have a kind of as i say confidence in pursuing things that might have been outside of outside of the norm but one of the big things for me is there's so much uh, capacity and potential in in those places if i've if on the number of times that i've been back to Hollyhead and some of the other schools on various projects in those communities, the, the, the amount of potential and, and also having worked in schools with, you know, maybe a bit more resources backing them, the amount of potential in the schools that are under-resourced is unbelievable, you know what I mean? And, and sometimes, as with my brother, it takes just an, a few people to give that little bit of a push and, and challenge and, and, you know, hold people to a high standard for them to kind of pursue their thing. So, that was the oldest one, and then the and then the middle brother and I we kind of ended up pursuing the music thing a lot more so, and I kind of followed followed him in that sense. He ended up pursuing the drums, and we played in various outfits together with like Aston Performing Arts and stuff. For example, he went and did the Birmingham Schools uh, concert orchestra. I think with Bob Vivian, I was always really kind of jealous because I went I played the saxophone and we weren't allowed in the orchestras. And that's when I learned the flute and said, I want a piece of this. And then I ended up doing the Birmingham Schools Symphony Orchestra. So I always tease him a little bit about that. But yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it was that thing of, we knew that on this landscape, especially at a time for us growing up in the early 2000s, there was a lot of resource and there was a lot of community engagement programs that were, that were supported and that really facilitated the likes of myself to be able to pursue these things. But that's also um, to say that whilst me and my brothers might still be pursuing this artistic thing. There's so many people who didn't end up pursuing the arts, but who still benefited so greatly from their experience to the arts. You know, there's countless people I can think of who I would have sat next to in orchestras and big bands and jazz groups and, and, and dance who are going on to do amazing things that probably in very different fields that probably wouldn't have had the same, um, you know, they wouldn't have developed the same skills if they didn't have access to those those areas you know what I mean so it's, it's, it's vital man you know this arts engagement thing is a real necessity for just the development of different different people in yeah different so your success is partly you know a, a credit to the school's music service in Birmingham exactly to, to organizations like the Midlands Youth Jazz Orchestra yeah, that you yeah. were part of as well you used to nip over to Ladywood as well and Andy Hamilton was your mentor yeah well it, it's a funny one with Andy Hamilton so 
our tune on the rec- on, on record is um, Hanging with Mr. Hamilton and we're joined by um, Louis Hamilton Fold, direct lineage um, of the Hamilton estate. Yeah, brilliant drummer. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I just think I just used to think that the saxophone was cool, really. And, and for I'm, people who don't know, I mean, Andy Hamilton was just a legendary Birmingham saxophonist who played residencies and played numerous gigs over the city over many years. Well, he is, you know, a titan of the instrument that kind of um, connected lots. Of, I mean, every time I hear stories about Andy with different, I mean, we were just talking the other day and talking about pictures of him with David Murray and various of the, the jazz greats, um, you know, and he really brought the ethos of that kind of community engagement thing, you know, is the pinnacle of it because he, he understood the importance of it, you know. So it was through his music school that I was first able to pick up the saxophone, you know. And yeah. So you're obviously, you know, very musically literate from quite a young age. Before I talk about the journey to jazz, though, I'm just keen to know what records you bought, you know, did you ever dabble with top 40 music or was your head ever turned by thrashing guitars? I mean, I was just, you know, I was just completely my brother's, plural, awake, you know, whatever they were listening to, I was listening to basically. And, and when my oldest brother moved to Leeds to study dance, he was exposed to lots of different music. And for a long time, it was really your cinematic orchestras, bonobos, hiatus coyotes, this kind of, that kind of area of music that was really really stuck with us that we were really kind of a little bit geeky probably about the metric stuff and and the chordal stuff and this this really stimulating music you know and then it was only a little bit later on that I'd kind of connected really with and I and and you know it's you know we were talking a bit earlier about like celebrating those who have come before is that you know we tend to prioritize the now and 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 youth and this kind of thing but you know, there's no school like the old school, especially when it comes to jazz, you know, it's, you know, we listen back to those records and they, they don't age, you know what I mean? They get more youthful the more you listen to them, you know what I mean? And it's that thing of the same with Andy's music and, you know, any, any other of the greats' music. And that's what I'm kind of interested in is getting back to that, that place where we celebrate technical proficiency is also something that's integral to this music, but the artistry, the entertainment element, the spiritual element to it, you know, is really, really vital to keep that alive. Yeah, and I think that's very much demonstrated on your 2021 album, Know Them, Know Us, which is you know, very much a, a nod back to many of the masters of bebop and so on. So how did you come to jazz then? How did you decide of all these musical forms that you were surrounded by that jazz was your thing? Um... I mean, it's just something that has has just occupied more and more of my time. And I just feel so blessed to have this lens that has helped me to learn so much about myself and my community and in in all of its, you know, various forms, my various communities. It's just been a, a complete lens to kind of to understand those things. So some people have a moment or a gig or a playing experience where it's like now jazz is the thing for me. Whereas for me, it's just been this thing that I went from not knowing anything about it to still, you know, and, you know, the more you know, the more you don't know. Um, and, and so I'm just still learning it basically and just and just trying to develop in it and grow in it and kind of it's just one of those things where it's because it's kind of a gradient. You don't know where it starts and stops, you know, and, and for me, well, it just doesn't stop and it's just more and more. I just think about it more and more. Yeah, I mean, jazz, I don't know if this is kind of a crude way of putting it, but jazz is the music of the African diaspora in the United States and Europe, isn't it? But that lineage is obviously so important to you and you've researched that as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the musical lineage is, is tied exactly with the, with the cultural lineage and, and, it, and it really represents it. You know, the music is a reflection of the people that are playing it in jazz as, as much as any music, you, you know. 
And so it's it's really important for me to colour the picture that I'm that I'm kind of painting and, and in order to do that, really understand the context in which it's kind of happened. And that's why I say it's been a lens because it's more than just the notes. It's really about understanding how we've got to these places, you know what I mean? And, and what steps that people have taken. It's one of those things, you know, if you don't know where you've come from, you know, you don't know where you're going. And so it's that thing of also understanding that on the micro level. So, um, you know, people that I'm around and my mentors, you know, understanding their journey, and then understanding how I can be a continuation of elements of that. You know, I was speaking to, um, I, 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 you know, do a little, very little bit of teaching because I don't want to kind of over-egg it and I don't charge my students. And it's like, oh, no, my, my dad said, you, you know, how am I going to... I said, I had free lessons, you know what I mean, when I, from, from various teachers, to be honest with you. I still have free lessons now, you know, and so uh, this is just an example of how that kind of, um, legacy can can move forward you know what I mean and, and I said to him when you're in whatever position maybe it's not in music maybe it's in some completely other craft but you then pay that forward to the next person and, and then hopefully we kind of build up a bit of momentum that way outside of the maybe the formalized institutional way and really reconnect and hearken back to you know some of our more person-to-person interactions and communications and connections you know yeah, we mentioned Andy Hamilton and used to go for weekly lessons with Andy. Who else would you say, whether locally or from the broader musical world, then have been your mentors? Um, I mean, it's like th- this would be the next two days <laughs> worth of just name, 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 name. Um, I think chronologically, maybe it's probably easiest. You know, we've got, we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, about Ace Dance and Music, Gail and Ian being the first people in the room who saw me take my first step. So, they're definitely a huge, huge um, influence on myself and many of our peers. Yeah, for people who don't know, Ace African Cultural Exchange, you were a dance studio in, based in Digbeth. And you mentioned that your brother had developed through Ace as well, but they were also instrumental in developing you. Yeah, I mean, everyone who comes into the kind of fold of Ace is just completely, um, you know, transformed through their sincerity and their their way of engaging with young people and supporting young people of of, of a mixed variety of heritages uh, within this city and stuff so ace has been integral to me but also to many many of the people that i've been around and many people who are pursuing lots of different paths and stuff um aside from that we've got uh, ray prince and sid peacock and tony green and janetta hurst all at uh, Hollyhead School and then all my one-to-one teachers. Um, Andy Isherwood was one of the first ones. Kieran O'Donnell, who was the head of the music service. Mike Seal, who was doing the BSS Soul. Um, John and Nicola Ruddick, who have been running my job for, for many years. Then Percy Persglove and Sarah Coleman, who run the Jazz Lines Ensemble and Summer School and continue to do so. And uh, more recent teachers like Mike Williams and um, Jean Toussaint, who's one of the Blakey's Jazz Messengers for a time with Terence Blanchard and stuff. I and see what you said. We could be here for the next two I, days. <laughs> but in terms of paying that forwards, my daughter is fortunate enough to have had sessions with Jazz Lines. She uh, plays the classic but I know that you've turned up to give your support as well to the young musicians at Jazz Lines. You know, that sense of hopefully in future maybe or even now being a mentor to other young people, like you say, paying it forward. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just seeing it as a cycle, you know, and at any given point you're maybe at a different point in that cycle. So there's the times in the cycle where you are completely a student, a time when you're kind of, the lines are a bit blurred and then the times where you're more of a formalised teacher and stuff. And so... If you're passionate about the thing that you're engaging with, you're passionate that the next generation are going to pay it forward. So, you know, as much as anything, it's just to just to keep keep it 
rolling. You know what I mean? That's kind of a big part of the thing for me is it's a it's a big responsibility and a big weight that I do feel because I am so passionate about this thing continuing, you know, forward. Um, but as as much as it's weight, it's also just really exciting to see some great talented young players uh, developing and honing their skills and experimenting with new things and challenging themselves and challenging each other and challenging me. So it's like, it's proper, it's proper those vibes. And it's not so binary as, as complete teacher and student, you know, you're always, if you're open to it, you can always learn from anyone that you play with. So, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of the vibe for me. So it's, it's mutually beneficial. I just want to reflect for a minute on that corner of Northwest Birmingham that you grew up in Handsworth, obviously the home of artists like Steel Pulse, Benjamin Zephaniah, people like Apache Indian as well, and the whole Bangra scene, a lot of that developed around Handsworth and so on. Nearby in Hockley, Soweto Kinch was developing. How important was it for you to have those role models within your community who were successful playing music that was, if you like, outside the top 40 mainstream? I think for me, when it comes to Northwest Birmingham and, and Birmingham generally and Hansworth specifically, I think it was less of a conscious thing for me. And I think it was more of an energetic thing whereby, you know, all these people that you've just mentioned, as well as more, you know, many, many more, have left this kind of thing in the air that we're still kind of vibing from basically and hoping to leave our own little bit of magic in the air. So I don't know if it was necessarily too much about seeing myself reflected, as I say, consciously, for me, it was more, it's, it's more just a feeling thing. And, and, and now finding out more about it, it's like, oh, that makes sense. Oh, this music was happening here. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can feel that. Cause it's all, you know, it's been, I saw, I managed to see um, the orchestra the other day, Sunrise Band is still, you know, still keeping on and, and playing so amazingly. And you can feel the vibrations of Sunrise still permeating through this band you know he's he's departed many many years ago but his band is still the vibrations are continuing and I think that's a similar thing when it comes to Hansworth it's such a spiritually you know deep place you know where so so much has happened that you know you you can't help but you know feel it's, it's kind of almost tangible in the air so I think that's that's really the thing for me is the legacy that's been left behind that we're still kind of feeling and still vibrating with you know yeah. How were you impacted by COVID? Because obviously you won the BBC Musician of the Year in 2018 and then a couple of years later, just as you're starting to develop some real momentum off the back of that, you can't go out, you can't perform. <laughs> Difficult to record even. How did, how did all that play out? Yeah, I mean, it was a notable time, definitely. I was very lucky in that um, I was able to spend the time at a friend's house in a very, very tiny hamlet in Derby, you know, very, very tiny. And um, he is a piano player, although he's studying piano tuning at the minute. And we were just in this kind of bubble, you know, this zone. And I think a lot of artists, myself included, you know, in the run-up to the pandemic, were working so hard and grafting and really just trying to keep the ball rolling and, keep moving, keep playing, keep gigging, keep recording, keep emailing, keep invoicing, you know what I mean? That we all needed this this in many instances of the time. And I hear a lot of people say, or have, I have heard a lot of people say, oh, I feel really guilty for saying that, you know, I had a good time in the lockdown and stuff. But it's important to acknowledge it if you did, because a lot of people really suffered in it. And if you were able to benefit from it, or if you were able at least to 
kind of see the benefits in it or experience the benefits of that time and that space, that very special time and space for some people, then you've got to you've got to acknowledge that and be grateful for for what it was. And that was definitely the thing for me to be able to spend time practicing, really, really practicing and and honing the skills in an isolated environment. And and because you know. To harken back to one of the greats, you know, Sonny Rollins spent years under a bridge just playing notes, man. You know what I mean? And it's like, you'd be hard-pressed to find the opportunity, shall we say, to do that in the current climate because people would just be working, 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 this, that, you know, the, gra- the graft is real. So that was a li- my little experience of being on a bridge was that kind of hiatus of time to really get back to some foundational bits on the instrument, you know. Just before lockdown, we had the murder of George Floyd and the development of the whole Black Lives Matter movement. Was that significant for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, May, May 2020 was a really difficult time for, for, the, for internationally, for the global community. Um, we were definitely, we, we were in an emotionally vulnerable place anyway, and there's still only not even starting to scratch the surface of some of the effects of this isolation period that everyone went through. Um, and all that to set the backdrop of, um, you know, a, it, you know, a ticking time bomb, essentially, you know, something that we've understood has been the landscape or many have understood has been the landscape and that we've been stepping on for the past kind of four or five hundred years and stuff. So it was, you know, it was it was definitely came to an emotional front. It's interesting looking over, you know, the square now where we had the march and stuff. And this was the time when I was broken out of that bubble of Derby. You know, I was broken out of that and brought into this bigger thing of like, oh, wow, we really still live in this world, you know. where And you came back into Birmingham for the BLM protest. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, it was important to be there. And, and it was very, uh, you know, again, quite a emotional and spiritual experience to be around so many, so many people I hadn't seen for, so, well, just so many people full start firstly, but secondly, so many people I hadn't seen for a long time. And to be together, there was a feeling of kind of, you know, collective mourning, definitely, but also, you know, frustration and a lot of pent up emotions that were uh, maybe we kind of had a cathartic experience at the time. And it was, it, I'm glad that many more, you know, honest and open conversations uh, followed it. You know, I definitely think that my engagement with, um, you know, racial disparities or racial inequalities, um, my relationship to the narrative and my relationship to, um, you know, progress and, and what progress looks like and how we come about progress has definitely changed and evolved as a result of, in that time, really being in the zone and, and researching and understanding more so even than I was doing before and stuff. So it's been great that, that you know, the, the conversations been opened in some places where it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't open before. Mm. And it led to a, a little animated film that you had a, a role in. You didn't do the animation, but you wrote the, the monologue in the film and the music for that as well. Stationary, peaceful protest, which was, I think, premiered at the Flatpak Festival. Yeah, um, so it was a commission initially by what was formerly Town Hall Symphony Hall, now B Music, um, is one of their kind of responses to the the situation. Um, And we were talking earlier, just in the other room, about music being able to do the things that words can't and then words also being able to do some things that music can't. And this was one of the first times I'd kind of incorporated both together. So it was really a first-person narrative about my experience coming to the march and by letting people into the various thoughts that was going on in my head you know for example a couple of things being 
what's my responsibility in regards to COVID at the time coming into this shared space where there's lots of, you know, people and stuff like this. Or for example, you know, should I, even the concept of, which was a very serious thought at the time, should I be wearing a suit to this thing? Because I, w- I want various um, iterations of blackness to be represented at this march and stuff. And, you know, in some ways it's a funeral. It's, um, should I bring my sax? Definitely brought my sax. And played with um, Peter, one of our, one of again, one of my mentors and a really close friend and stuff. And he was also happened to be in a, a suit and stuff. So it really just invites people into what my thought processes were at the time, you know, and and some of the little interactions that I had with different people who were in the in the march. Some of the questions that I had internally, and I think by opening people into that um, very personal reaction or internal responses to the situation I think it helped clarify some things that for me don't need saying because they're thoughts in my head but obviously for people with different experiences if you're able to bring them into a verbalized narrative then you can open the you know make some things click you've come back to Birmingham I know you studied away for a bit of time in London we're delighted to have you back by the way and that's obviously a conscious choice on your part and I I think it's brilliant I'm I'm really chuffed that you've chosen to make Birmingham your home because so many musicians in the past no doubt for the very best of reasons have headed particularly towards London because that's where the centre of most of the music biz in this country are you committed to Birmingham long term um yeah definitely for the foreseeable future you know as I said earlier there's a lot of dormant or not even dormant necessarily there's a lot of talent that is really I can feel it bubbling in the air in this city and I want to be part of the thing that brings that talent to the to a front you know to various education programs and stuff like that one of the benefits for me maybe on a more selfish note is that in Birmingham I have the ability to be able to rehearse with bands you know in London everyone is just trying to pay their rent so the, it's just a constant graft which means that people are next 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 and I love it and I love traveling down to Bur- uh, down to London most weeks and connecting with the community there and getting that top up of inspiration and work ethic that I find is you know kind of unique to London and bringing a bit of that energy back to Birmingham um, I think it's nice to have the dialogue between the two cities for me because neither city is perfect, but both definitely have their, you know, real benefits, you know what I mean? And I feel like where I'm at now, I'm able to really benefit from being in both both places and, and learn from the different different zones and stuff. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's no samosas like on Soho Road. So, uh, <laughs> I'm sticking around for now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm with you, I'm with you. And uh, Birmingham is, you know, been home to different kinds of music over many years you know whether we think of Birmingham as the home of metal whether we think of the Bangra scene that I mentioned earlier on it had an incredibly vibrant rave scene very very busy in in the world of grime for example and sort of post-punk hardcore all these things do you feel a kinship with those kind of music um, I, yeah, I think but it's, it's one of Duke Ellington's classics is, um, you know, there's only two types of music, good music and bad music. <laughs> and I, tr- I try to expose myself to as much of music as I can, you know, from different different genres, because I think there's always something to learn and to connect with. You know, one of the big... The, great things about jazz music is we spend so much time learning how all the different pieces of the puzzle of this music thing fit together that we're just constantly in awe of other musicians as as well as just understanding how their thing fits together so 
you know, I just feel I definitely feel a kinship with 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 musicians of any of any kind of uh, lineage, and and love the innovators, but also love the traditionalists, and love that different people relate to their um, things in different way. But ultimately, you know, it's a sacred it's a sacred responsibility, a sacred craft to be able to be a musician and to be a you know all that that encompasses as a teacher, as a mentor, as an entertainer as someone bringing communities together and reflecting people's experiences as storytellers, various things, you know, it's a, it's a really, it's a really deep thing. So in that sense, I definitely feel a kinship with all musicians, basically most. And what is it that you looking forward in your career most want to achieve? Um, I mean, it would be, as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, definitely unearthing and, and polishing some of the diamonds that are around in the Birmingham community is definitely a big, a big thing. Um, and musically, really, it's just to work with really top musicians and, and to spend time with them and to understand music and just have had experiences playing with people, you know what I mean? Because that's a big part of the, the jazz experience is to play with musicians older than you, younger than you. So, And I, I'm lucky to be doing that, you know, already and, and just hope to continue doing that to play with older musicians to play with younger musicians to play with my peers and to develop a band and and keep and as I say keep telling stories you know and keep collaborating with with different musicians and and helping to try and understand my own identity and through doing that hopefully help people to understand their own identity and how they relate to themselves and their different um, elements of their their you know their their being basically so I wouldn't say there's any not much of a bucket list situation but more so just to just to do more you know just to be surrounded by it more brilliant stuff well good luck with that as well a man of great talent and great humility Zosa Cole ladies and gentlemen On Record, In Conversation is produced by Siobhan Stevenson for the Birmingham Music Archive and presented by Birmingham 2022 Festival with the generous support of Arts Council England and the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Yeah.